On this week's episode of Empower, we're joined by Commissioner Rodney Ellis of Harris County Precinct 1 to provide updates on all the work that's going on in the county and how he's trying to support our residents. Empower is a podcast presented by the Houston Area Urban League that serves to inform young professionals about the Urban League, its programs, and the various civic and social topics pertinent to the community they serve. morning everyone this is a very special actually the first time uh we've done a live streaming of the podcast my name is ray Shackleford. i'm the national president for the national urban league young professionals i am the host and this is presented by the houston area urban league and we are joined by a very special guest uh someone who really needs no introduction a lifetime public servant servant Started in the uh, city council, served for, I believe, about 26 years in the state senate, passing more than 700 pieces of legislation, and now serves as a county commissioner for Harris County Precinct 1, Commissioner Rodney Ellis. Commissioner, how are you doing this morning? Ray, good to be with you. You know, I'm learning technology here, so uh, I'm just turning that volume up, but hey, I'm learning how to... I'm learning how to navigate in this new world in which we live. Yes, sir. We all are, and we uh, we thank you for your leadership and everything you and your office have been doing as it relates to helping the residents of Harris County adjust as best as possible. Uh, and so, of course, you know, we wanted to start off uh, with COVID-19, and I know your office has been doing a lot of work around that, but just kind of setting the uh, the table as it relates to what that impact has looked like as it relates to uh, what your, your office has been seeing. Well, Ray, this is a, a pandemic. Uh, it is a crisis like uh, uh, something we have never seen. In fact, there are a lot of analogies to the Spanish flu pandemic uh, around about 1913 or so. And it's interesting, as I read up on that pandemic, we really not have, we have not evolved to the point where we are much better prepared than we were then. I give you a little footnote in history. You know, when you, when you get to be my age and or your dad's age, when we wake up at night, instead of uh, just counting sheep to go back to sleep, we read. So right. when there was a controversy ab about referring to this as a uh, Chinese virus, you remember that controversy yes, early sir. on? For some reason, I just went on Wikipedia and looked up the Spanish flu. And I was wondering, well, why was that called the Spanish flu? Was it discovered in a Spanish-speaking country? Or did it come from Spain? As it turns out, during World War I, Spain was neutral. And the, the so-called Spanish flu got that name because the king of Spain got it. And the press was independent to report on things as they saw it in Spain. That was not the case in England. It was not the case in France. That was a general person's agreement. Just don't talk about it in the United States. The so-called Spanish flu was discovered at a military base in Kansas, of all places. Now, here's an interesting footnote. Up until about a week ago, the state that had the lowest percentage of testing per capita was the state of Kansas, where the Spanish flu was discovered. There's controversy about whether it came from there or not, but that's right. where it was discovered. Because the war was going on and people could travel, it was on a military base, 
maybe because some of those soldiers had gone to other uh, distant points of the world uh, during the theater of war, so to speak, uh, but they discovered it there. The state that had the second worst rate of testing was Texas. Now that's Virginia, when my staff updated it for me a couple of weeks ago. Why Virginia? I don't know. In fact, I'm going to call some county officials and old state legislative colleagues of mine in Virginia and ask what's going on. Uh, but look, when the Spanish flu came about, here's what they used to deal with it. Mask, wearing mask. I have mine. Since I'm learning in your generation, you got you to gotta show them. This one, my daughter brought back, who's about your age from Washington, D.C. She got this at Ace Hardware in D.C. And they sold out. You can't get them other than online. So I've ordered some for all my family. But they had masks. They did social distancing. Um, and uh, that's pretty much what we're doing now. Now, they didn't do as much tracing because it was not as easy to trace, to, to trace as it is now because they can turn on an app and determine if you and I are in the same room by following our cell phones since we live by them. So if you Google it up, it'll show that more people are out and getting around, which scares the heck out of me. Uh, but it's interesting, over 100 years later, here we are with another pandemic, and what do we have? Testing, but not enough of it. Right. Social distancing uh, and wearing masks. Uh, and now we're adding uh, tracing to it. Uh, it talks about uh, some of the press accounts talk about how St. Louis did a better job because early on, they locked down. They shut down. St. Louis was a major city in 1918. If you go back and check the rankings in terms of size, that was the gateway to the, to the West, West Coast. Uh, so it was much larger than Chicago in 1918, St. Louis was probably on par with Philadelphia. Philadelphia and New York, New York were probably two of the major cities in the country back then. Philadelphia, they had a great St. Patrick's Day parade. Boston they had a great St. Patrick's Day parade. Guess what? The number of deaths from the Spanish flu were off the charts. So I think that our county judge, Lena Hidalgo, I'm so proud of her. I think she and Mayor Sylvester Turner did the right thing to lock us down. That was a tough decision. Because look, we've essentially made the economy go comatose. And that's a scary, scary deal. I mean, unemployment rates figures are as high as they were during the Great Depression. So that is a frightening thing to have unemployment that high. But here's the real challenge for us as citizens, as leaders, you are among young professionals. I submit to you, we ought to be as concerned about our lives as we are about our livelihood. Uh, I'm glad the federal government came up with a relief package fairly quickly. Probably not as well thought out as the next one will be, but they had to do something. Better to do something than do nothing, even if you can't dot all I's and cross all the T's. On the county level, my colleague, Commissioner Garcia, took the lead. We put about $15 million up into a small business fund to help some of these businesses. The money was gone in no time. We'll probably do another one. Uh, we may get it reimbursed with that money that Commissioner Garcia came up with from the CARES Act. We'll, we may or may not. I think we will. Uh, when we do another program, I hope we'll do a bit more to make sure we target it to help some people 
who were already infected with a virus before COVID showed up, the virus of discrimination, of inequity, uh, of inequality, of being left behind. Uh, and that's, that's actually where I wanted to go next because we've seen in a number of different studies, the statistics definitely bear that out, which you're, which you're referencing is that communities of color, um, black people, Hispanic people have dis been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus. Uh, and I know that's something that your office has definitely been responsive to. Well, I do want to tell you on the healthcare side, before we go to the business side, I know a lot of young professionals are interested in it. Here's an interesting stat. Uh, black people in America are three times more likely to contract COVID-19. And if they get it, they are six times more likely to die from it. And that goes to those underlying issues, both for African-Americans and other people of color. You know, Texas has the highest percentage of uninsured people in the country, yeah. dialysis problems, diabetes problems, obesity problems, people who live in food deserts, uh, those uh, who have not learned, a lot, just, a lot of people just not educated on what is a bad diet. You know, we get real excited about soul food. Then you think about there's nothing soulful about high blood pressure. You enjoy those pork ribs, they kill you. Uh, that salt, and that's a big problem. If you live in communities where you don't have access to uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, you got to go the extra mile or two or five to get the fresh fruit and vegetables. Uh, we are a society, by and large, that eats out. When you eat out, if you don't tell them, don't put the salt in, I assure you to put the salt in, they part to preserve it. But there were underlying health issues. You know, you're not more prone to get it because you're black or because you're brown. It's because of those underlying issues. On the economic side, I just want to stress that at Harris County, even before this, we were doing a disparity study. Uh, Urban League and other civil rights uh, advocacy-oriented groups, LULAC, NAACP, uh, were active encouraging the county to do a disparity study so you can justify having a race and gender-based small business program uh, and I believe that that's really the key to giving more people in your generation an opportunity to set up their own businesses. So look, from the county side, uh, during COVID, after COVID, before COVID, everything that I try to advocate, I do it with an equity lens. You know, we're coming into the hurricane season now. The yes, predictions sir. are that this will be a very active year. Uh, after Harvey, we came up with a bond package, about $2.5 billion uh, local money for flood control projects. It's not enough, but it's a big amount. Uh, the largest amount we've ever committed to a bond package. I advocated when I was the uh, only minority on the governing board of this county. Fourth largest county in the country, five million people. That's larger than 26 states. I advocated we have some equity language on the ballot. In fact, threatened to oppose the bond language on the ballot if we didn't include equity language. I didn't try to define it, that would have been a fight. But at least my colleagues at the time agreed to have some equity language and we figure out later what equity means. You gotta be careful, some people try to equate equity with equality. Well, that's a distinction. Because if we take in $2.5 billion and just split it between four precincts, the federal rules of engagement are tilted towards higher income neighborhoods. So if you're trying to draw down federal money and get permission from the Corps of Engineers to do a flood control project, they look at a cost benefit ratio. That means you go do 
a wealthier neighborhood first. Watersheds like along Greens and Halls, Fifth Ward, Cashmere Gardens. Now, why is that? Well, the federal government, I assume, came up with that language because they wanted to stretch the money as far as they could. Uh, my research from my staff indicates they took an old executive order from President Ronald Reagan when I was a staffer for Congressman Mickey Leland. And they have distorted that executive order since the 80s to essentially say, we're going to use federal money for flooding projects first based on a cost-benefit ratio. Nice phrase, but that means you go protect downtown. You go protect the medical center. And I don't argue with that. But you also go protect wealthier neighborhoods. So take a New Orleans example. You never get to the Ninth Ward. The value of the homes are so low. I can see why you would protect, in the case of Houston, downtown, the medical center. We all need that. That's a center of employment. But why would you value River Oaks or some west side neighborhood or a more affluent north side or south side neighborhood before you get to where people don't have cars to get out and they flood? Or people who flood every time, not just some of the time when there's a record rainfall event. So it's been a big battle. I didn't understand cost-benefit ratio until I was still in the Senate and I got a nomination to become a county commissioner. The head of flood control walked me through it. I didn't catch it the first time. I'm a little slow, you know. <laughs> so when he explained it the second or third time, I got it. And he was explaining it to me because he wanted me to go and talk to our congressional delegation, particularly Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, Congressman Al Green, uh, then Congressman Gene Green, to get them to advocate for changing that federal policy. And I remember thinking, you want me to go and convince them to change a policy that dates back to Ronald Reagan's era, and now President Trump is in the White House, and you want me to go tell them to go get President Trump to eliminate an executive order from Ronald Reagan. I wish somebody had explained that to me when President Obama was in the White House, uh, but the issue did not come up then. I didn't get it. I'm not sure if they got it. But so we, we work with what we have. So by that equity language being there, that means it's a big deal. We're going to do greens and halls. Takes a long time to do it. As a possibility, many neighborhoods will flood again that have flooded in the past. It takes a long time to go through the permitting process, try to get a match on federal money, do the engineering design to do these flood control projects. Now, I'm bringing that up to you, although you're talking about COVID, because I want to tell you, since I've been here, the crises have been nonstop. You know, maybe it's always been that way, but we notice it more now. Harvey, right. industrial fires, uh, and then you come in with um, uh, another rain event uh, we had, and then you come up with a pandemic. Uh, so look, we're in challenging times. In your generation, obviously, uh, we are fortunate in America that we can print money. The federal government, states and counties, cities can't do it, but the federal government can keep printing money. And the dollar is still the strongest backer of currency on the globe. So no matter how bad things are in America, they're worse anywhere else on the globe. So most people who have money to invest still want to invest it in America. They want the dollar to back it, whether you're in Germany, if you're in Paris, if you're in Switzerland, if you're in Africa, you're in China, it's still that American dollar. But at some point, we got to pay for it. Now, that's your generation and beyond you. 
because even if we raise taxes, after we keep printing money, government has the ability to tax and spend. And we got to spend money to get out of this hole. Infrastructure projects, unemployment claims. But at some point, you got to pay the piper. And that means your generation and people after you will be stuck with that, with that tax bill down the road. So as we rebuild this economy, it's going to be a challenge. And look, you read the stuff. That's a fear. We could have a relapse. You know, a lot of your millennials out there, finger popping. You know, I asked you before we started, were you at home? I'm in the office, but that's why I have this mask. Because if yes, somebody sir. has to come in and help me set up this thing I never heard of, Zoom. Now I'm Zooming all day. You know, in my generation, Zoom was something your dad and I did in a car. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, your generation will have to pay for this. And if we end up going uh, with an increase, I think I saw last night when I was reading the paper, I think we had a record number of deaths in Texas yesterday, right? You probably saw that in the paper. Well, yes, sir. The numbers have continued to climb uh, as it relates to the cases, obviously with testing ramping up, but also the reopenings from Governor Abbott's office, uh, but also to your point, the deaths. Um, now, I know one thing- no, And I'm not knocking the governor on that. I'm just saying, look, uh, Ray, there's no playbook for what we're going through. Right. You know, we can go back and learn lessons from the Spanish flu, and I'm not sure they ever discovered what that virus was, by the way. You know, I saw the podcast the other day with uh, Microsoft uh, founder Gates, uh, where, you know, some time ago he was predicting the next war we'd have uh, would be a pandemic. Uh, but uh, there's really no playbook for this. Uh, we are writing the script as we go. I was saying earlier, Judge Hidalgo and uh, Mayor Turner, it was a bold move. The first closure that I remember in Texas was uh, South by Southwest. Austin did it. That was a bold move. Right. He canceled South by Southwest. And then a week or so after that, they were canceling the rodeo. You know, the rodeo, you talk about how big the Super Bowl is, during the rodeo, that's about five Super Bowls, five different times. I mean, with the crowd of people right. uh, that come in and the revenue generated from it, well, they made the right call. They shut it down. Some people questioned that when it, when it happened, you remember? And then they expanded beyond I it. Now, yeah, so far we're doing, it looks like we're doing okay. I'm doing something when NBC on news radio, uh, they called me about Judge Hidalgo, and I'm going to do an interview with them later. So right now, our numbers are down. We're lucky because, look, we got all of the ingredients that would make you think we'd have a serious problem. We are an international city. You know, a lot of people come through because this is a city based on trade. This is not a tourist destination. That's why it's so expensive to fly in and out of Houston. This is a business destination. That port, containers coming in, people from all around the world, we have – such a low percentage of people who have health insurance. We have dirty air. You got me? We have some of the dirtiest air in the country. You know, we produce uh, oil and gas and we refrigerate the air. We, we produce the stuff that makes it cool for our friends in New York during a heated summer. We produce the stuff that uh, makes it warm for them when they have a bone chilling winter. Right. But we pay a price for that with our dirty air. Uh, we also benefit uh, having to pass from a robust economy as a result of that. 
we have a very diverse population. I mentioned those factors that impact communities of color because of underlying issues. But here's one thing in our favor. We are spread out. You got me? This is a huge place. Back when I was on council, the largest city in the country, in terms of square miles, I think was Jacksonville, Florida. I haven't looked at the stats in a long time. But we are spread out in Houston. In New York, people are concentrated. So you're seeing what we have the biggest problems here in jails, in nursing homes, uh, places where people are clustered in and it's more and difficult to social, uh, to social distance. Now, one of the things, and you, you referenced it a couple of times, is, you know, the least of those, um, you know, whether it's communities of colors, those that already suffer from health disparities, et cetera. Um, your office is doing a couple of things as it relates to food distribution, but also, I believe, some care packages in partnership with the food bank uh, and some other entities to try to serve them. I wanted to make sure that people knew about those initiatives as well. Yeah, and, and Ray, I will say we're doing it, and so are all of my colleagues who are elected officials. You know, all my colleagues on Commissioner's Court, you know, Commissioner Garcia, uh, Kago Raddick, you know, our friends at City Hall, Mayor Turner, all of the council members, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. You know, this is a time when people, I'm so proud to say, are putting party or political differences aside and working together. Uh, but we've distributed, you know, a couple hundred thousand masks out of our precinct. They're pretty high grade masks. In fact, they were so popular, you know, not quite like this. Somebody was telling me I look like I'm going to Batman uh movie when i put this thing on you know i'm a bicycle rider so i can breathe out of this thing uh but we've got some masks we've given out that run about 250 a piece i think we run out of those might have about 5,000 left so we're going to give out some that are uh, a bit uh, less expensive food was a big problem when commissioner garcia took the lead on the business assistance program i was thinking about old jesse jackson used to give that speech about people who catch the early bus you know we don't right. see them they clean our homes, mow our yards, but they get out early in the morning and they just out there working. We don't see them, but I want to make sure we touch those people. You know, a lot of our folks who are working in restaurants, many in the immigrant community, they pay taxes. Uh, by the way, we, we operate state government primarily on sales taxes. So uh, we got a COVID relief fund for about $15 million. I thought we would have had it up and active by now. We announced it three weeks ago and the lawyers have been dotting I's, crossing T's. And I think the language I used when I shipped it to legal to figure it out was uh, not specific enough. So that'll be back on the agenda. And when we do it, I think we're gonna work through the community foundation so they can get it out, but with the eye of equity. They're gonna put some metrics in. So it's not just first come, first serve, because who tends to benefit most from first come, first serve? people who are better prepared. And to answer your question, I always use this line. I don't know who came up with it, but it's hell to be poor. It's hell to be poor. And you just tend not to be prepared. So with that 15 million, we're gonna have some metrics in there to make sure we take enough time to get it to organizations who go out and get to those people who have the least among us. We don't have enough to solve all of the problems. Right. Nor has the federal government uh, so far. Uh, but look, food's been a big problem. I put item on the agenda to give the food bank, I think a quarter of a million dollars. My colleagues thought it was a good idea, so they chimed in and said, uh, why don't we do it with county money? 
general revenue money, not just money out of precinct one, which is the one, uh, the fund that, that I have more influence over. And, uh, you know, we, we've, we've given up uh, thousands of pounds of food through the food bank. It's amazing. When I go to NRG, uh, we got them at Tom Bass Park, uh, Deucent Park, uh, uh, Finnegan, Hester House, community centers all over the place. We're doing it. City's doing it as well. Uh, unincorporated as well. You see people in these lines that I talk to who tell me, one woman told me she used to volunteer at the food bank. And she said, I never would have dreamed that I'd end up in a line at a food bank with someone helping me get food in my car, uh, as opposed to being a volunteer. We set up a system so county employees who are working on an hourly basis can get credit for working at the food bank, the jail, or the health department, some community work, instead of just staying home and trying to figure out what they can do online. In a lot of ways, they are first responders. I mean, so my staff members who I saw across the street passing out gloves and face masks to people who are in our normal summer aquatics program and the seniors who come to us. Uh, my staff members have been working with the food bank and others. They're delivering meals. In fact, we had so many calls coming into the office, we had to hook up this technology to get somewhere where you push a button and we could refer to calls because we we're getting 300 calls a day. And uh, it was just overwhelming us in multiple languages, by the way. But look, we're doing all we can. I want to stress to you that as challenging as this is, we're going to get through it and we'll get through it together. For your audience in particular, Urban League Services, uh, people who need help of all colors, all persuasions, all parties and all, but your base came out of the civil rights movement, out of the black community. And I always stress to people uh, when I talk to them who are depressed and on the verge of uh, maybe losing it all, I just tell them, particularly for African-Americans, some estimates are that, a, that 20 million people died during the Middle Passage, going from Africa, coming to the New World. Some people would just jump off of a slave ship if they were out of their shackles long enough, having no idea what they were going into. Maybe 20 million perished in that ocean. And then to get here, go through the slave trade. And then when that ended, a quick minute of reconstruction under Abraham Lincoln. Then when he was assassinated, that ended, and you go through the era of racial terrorism. A lot of people moved out in the neighborhood I grew up in, Sunnyside, because of lynchings and racial terror issues in Houston. They moved acres home, Fofo, move out to Sunnyside, had a colored school district out there in Sunny, the Sunnyside Colored School District. Get through all of that and then make it to where we are. Strong genes, you got me? So we've been through tough times before. We got to make sure we turn towards one another, not on each other. You know, mental health is a big issue. You got a lot of instances of uh, spouses attacking spouses, attacking children, fights, you know, cause it was not intended for us to be cooped up. You were saying you thought my children were, were gone. When I got up this morning, I was walking through the house thinking, who are all these people in my house? I don't know these people. <laughs> they were such nice little kids. I can remember, you know what I mean? Now I tell somebody, pick this trash up. 
out of this room and they tell me, hey, dad, I'm tired. I need to get a beer. Get a beer. Get out of my house. <laughs> you know, but we have to adjust and we'll make it through it. Uh, but it is going to be a challenge economically, emotionally, uh, physically. Uh, it's going to be a big challenge. You know, uh, uh, you know, we got a number of items coming up on the agenda on the county level. We can't do it all on our level. We, we are cooperating with the city. You got to have partners. Uh, we're working with the state, you know, no playbook, as I mentioned, you know, tensions get frayed a bit. Uh, wondering how much can the federal government do, knowing at some point it has to be paid for. Uh, but we'll get through it, but it's got to be challenging. It'll be very challenging. Yes, sir. And you, you made some excellent points and great perspective as it relates to, you know, the, the young woman you said that used to volunteer at the food bank. And I think for all of us, that's a very sobering and important message because you never know how quickly these things will shift and some of these same services that we support and volunteer, we may need them ourselves. And so I definitely want people to make sure that they're aware of that. Now, one thing I think was critical that you touched on was the, uh, the rental assistance and the equity that would be built into that. I know yourself uh, and other commissioners are working on that. We saw with the city of Houston, that money was gone, I believe in two hours, $15 million. Um, where should people- I think 90 those? minutes. He was gone in 90 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Okay. So 90 minutes. Where yeah. should people stay tuned to make sure that they are abreast of what's going on with that program that need that assistance? It, it'll be on the county's website. But as I said, uh, working with the community foundation last night when I left office, my staff was on a call with them. We're going to try to come up with some different metrics. So it's not just first come first serve. There are people who don't have access to the internet, by the way. You know, I mentioned when I got on this call and you went off for a second, you know, I'm adjusting the Zoom. You could see me, but I had to figure out the button so I could look at you again. Uh, but so we're trying to figure out, is that the best way to do it? And we're looking around the state. That's why this county money is going to be a little slower. It's only 15 as well. 15 is not enough. Uh, from the city side or the county side, by the way. And we're going through issues like, do we do ours in the city limits? Uh as well as unincorporated. You know, I don't know where you live, but it's interesting. I didn't notice until I made the switch from the Senate. There are more people in unincorporated Harris County than there are in the city. Isn't that interesting? So when the census comes out, which is a separate issue, make sure you encourage people to fill out the form while they're at home, restless, going crazy, picking up beer cans from their children, loved ones, I'll do that census deal. Well, yes, sir. And I was about to say, since you brought that up, because um, that was something we were going to pivot to at, at some point, is, you know, just reminding people why it is so important for people to complete the census. They don't understand, you know, how that money comes back into our community and how we need it in Houston and Harris County. Our allocation of uh, federal dollars is based on our population. Our allocation of seats in Congress is based on population. How many seats, uh, the, how the lines are drawn for a county commissioner, school board, city council, state rep, state senator is based on the census. It is extremely important. And communities of color traditionally are undercounted. But to get out, to get money, money from the federal government, do that. Make sure you get that uh, census in. But look, I was making a point. Isn't it interesting? All the predictions say there are more people in unincorporated Harris County than in the city of Houston. That ought to scare the heck out of me. Counties don't have ordinance-making power. I always opposed it when I was a state senator. I didn't know 
that there were more people in unincorporated Harris County than in the city of Houston, that the population was growing that fast. That's pretty unique to us. You know, we got these toll roads that connect us, by the way. I mentioned about us being spread out. Uh, but that also adds to a host of other issues, like all of that concrete, more impervious cover. You know what impervious cover leads to? Flooding, <laughs> you know, uh, it all it all ties in. So look, I, I, it's interesting for me, after being a state policymaker for 26 years, to come back home to the community that uh, raised me, uh, prepared me for the life I've tried to live, to look at these issues with a different perspective. And I always try to, if I'm coming up with a program, I always ask myself, well, do they do this anywhere else? And are there lessons to be learned, both good and bad, uh, that we can take from someone who did it ahead of us? So on this COVID relief fund the county is doing, which is a small amount, we got that 400 and some odd million we're gonna spend from the CARES Act. We're going through a debate right now if the counties have to go split their money with other cities that are in the county, which could reduce the amount of money we have. But, you know, we're all hurting. Uh, but I'm, I want to make sure on everything we do, always have that lens of equity. Because, you know, we mentioned the Great Depression earlier. My read of history is that the middle class is essentially a U.S. phenomenon. It was the American government through governmental policy that created a middle class in this country. It was FDR and his uh, uh, great programs that he put in place during Reconstruction after the re after after the I'm sorry uh, after the Great Depression and uh, Jenny May Fannie Mae, you know programs so you could go to college free, you could get a home. Uh, at a very low interest rate. That's what created the middle class. Other parts of the world hadn't done that. Well, here's the problem. If you were black, you could only move into a neighborhood that would take blacks. You want a government uh, a loan, a free tuition to go to college from the government, GI Bill, you could only go to a college that would take you if you were black. There were challenges if you were Hispanic as well. So that means when the middle class was created, Ray, your grandfather didn't have the same opportunities that other people had. And so I'm saying at some point you got to play catch up. You want to help everybody, but you want to make sure, I hope when we come out of this pandemic, we don't just put people back who are already at the bottom, at the bottom again. Of the things that we can do to make up for historical inequities that government put in place. Uh, so it, in my mindset, that's my thought process when I do things, when I advocate for things like criminal justice reform, uh, advocate that we got to create a new economy. You know, we, we want to make sure that we get jobs that'll be different. When you go back to your urban league office, I mean, is that office space? that you have now, is that office space? When will another pandemic come along? Do we need to figure out, are we gonna have to figure, wear masks all the time, gloves? Are we gonna have to put the screens? What are we gonna have to do until a vaccine comes about? And then when this one is cured, Spanish flu was 1918, I think. Well, when the next one comes, it, it, not, it, it may not wait until 2028 or 2038. Uh, 
but we want to make sure as we train people, we, we try to make up for inequities that government created in the past. You know, we got to do something to make more people get access to the internet. Everybody doesn't have it. I'm in this room on my county internet. I don't want to work from my home because everybody in my neighborhood is online now. And I knew it was going to rain today. So if it starts lightning and I get knocked off in the middle of your podcast, what do I do? But Ray, look, I thank you for having me. I know any, anything else you want to ask me, I know we're about to wrap up. Yes, sir. I was just about to say that one thing we didn't touch on was elections. Uh, people are trying to make sure that it will be safe uh, to participate in those elections. And I know your office is working uh, with the commissioners and the other powers that be to ensure that, that is, there is a path for people to do so safely. Big fight going on right now. I was late getting on this podcast because I, I was listening to a former staffer, former intern of mine, Chad Dunn, uh, arguing a case in federal court, I think in Austin, about our ability to do mail-in ballots. The law in Texas is if you're over 65, if you if you like me, you know, I joke sometimes saying, you know, I'm at risk. I'm old and I'm black. But if you're over 65, I'm 66, I can just request a mail-in ballot and get it. As one lawsuit saying, is that fair? Why can't you just request a mail-in ballot and get it? I might be in better shape than you. I worked out an hour yesterday and rode my bike uh, for about an hour last night at 7 o'clock. Uh, but anyway, uh, the law in Texas also says if you have a disability, you can request a mail-in ballot and get it. Uh, disability would include if you're in jail and charged with murder, but you haven't been convicted. You're in jail, though. Awaiting trial, innocent until proven guilty. You can get a mail-in ballot. So why wouldn't the fear of getting COVID, COVID, I think it said 400, I saw something last night, 400,000 people voted in Wisconsin, in, in Madison, Wisconsin, whatever county that is, Madison County maybe. And I think about 40 people county. contracted COVID uh, going to vote uh, because over there, the governor wanted to do mail-in ballots, but the legislature went to court and, and fought it. Uh, I think we ought to send everybody mail-in ballots. You know, Texas has had an ignoble history as it relates to voting rights. That repressive vote ID law we have is just ridiculous. You can get a gun ID and vote, but you can't use your student ID to go and vote. Some people don't have a driver's license because they own tickets. You got me, can't get a driver's license. So you have folks who want to keep us from voting. And it, it is a, a partisan concern there because they want to keep uh, certain people from voting. I've got an item on the agenda. Right now, the appellate court in Austin has said everybody can get a mail-in ballot. And I'm going to push uh, to do as much as we can. I have an item next Tuesday. We'll see what happens in federal court or the state attorney general is taking the case to the Texas Supreme Court trying to keep us from being able to do mail-in ballots. And you know why, you know what's at stake leading up to a presidential race, but no, it's ugly. Uh, but we'll know what happened in federal court and see what happens at the uh, state Supreme Court. I hope the federal court steps in and then I hope it stops the state back and forth. Trial court said we could do it. Court of Appeals has said we could do it on the state level. Supreme Court, I have state Supreme Court, I don't know what they'll do. Hope the federal court steps in this trial court and says, we can do mail-in ballots. We can send them out to you. Send them out. You know, hope you send it at, send it back, but democracy costs money. Uh, but anyway, that's an important issue. Ray, thank you for what you do. I've, I've seen you grow up 
over the years, and I'm, I know your parents are proud, and, I, and I'm proud of you too. Yes, sir. I appreciate that. We appreciate your leadership. Uh, all the information you gave us today was a very unique blend of uh, history and important information. You taught me uh, a few things just in our, our short conversation today, and we want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Make sure if you haven't already, please complete your 2020 census. Go to my2020census.gov and stay tuned and uh, abreast of everything that the commissioner is doing over at Precinct 1. Uh, there's a lot of good work coming from that office. And please stay safe. Continue to follow the guidelines. Wear your mask uh, as you see the commissioner putting on his and practice physical distancing. And we will see you guys next week. To learn more about how the Houston Area Urban League is impacting the community and ways you can get involved, visit us online at haul.org, follow us on Twitter at HOU Urban League, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcasting platform you enjoy. Thanks for listening to Empower, presented by the Houston Area Urban League.